This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today and I'm here with Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. What's up, Mark? What's up is the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have a great night's sleep and this is an early morning podcast, so we're just going to do the best we can without a cup of coffee. All right. Good luck. <laughs> To both of us, I trust that you're going to be able to power through, right? Exactly. Um, who is joining us this morning? Christine Herman. Christine is a multimedia producer for Illinois Public Media, uh, working on a new statewide talk show called The 21st. She's a PhD chemist turned journalist, and so she focuses on health and science coverage. And we're inviting her because she wrote a very thoughtful article for Christianity Today on listening. We'll talk about that in a bit. Morning, Christine. Good morning. Hey, guys. Sounds like a natural progression from PhD chemist to journalist. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a long winding road, but <laughs> it all makes sense now in the end. It's fun when you can bring those all those things to bear on the work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, today we're talking about not talking. We're talking about listening. It seems like everybody's talking about listening these days. At least they were this past Tuesday when I was starting to prepare this introduction. I noted that The Guardian published a piece about how art therapy helps people with trauma, and the uh, writer noted empathy, the ability to listen, and life experience are all crucial qualities to have. You, you may come into contact with really vulnerable people or people who have experienced trauma, so you need to be emotionally resilient and robust. And as the article pointed out, just a really good listener. That same day, the Tennessean ran an article entitled, Listening to Gun Owners Brings New Understanding. And it was about how the newspaper is creating community conversations, quote, inviting groups of people with common interests or backgrounds into the newsroom to talk with journalists about accuracy, fairness, and perceptions, fair or not, and of bias, end quote. So the paper is reaching out in an effort to listen to some of its readers. And perhaps it was providential that I had lunch that day with a past guest of Quick to Listen, Professor Theon Hill of Wheaton College, and in the course of the conversation, he said that in one of his communication classes, he teaches students the art of careful listening to others, especially those whose views they find disagreeable or even abhorrent. And he said this is a real challenge for some of the students. Sometimes they come into his office weeping, having gone through that exercise because they were having to listen to views they normally just screen out. So in other words, we are regularly reminded in many spheres uh, that we live in an increasingly divided and distrustful world and that listening is a crucial first step in dealing with our cultural, political, and religious tensions. And that's one reason this podcast, of course, exists. Our guests on Quick to Listen give us insight into people and events we don't fully understand, and that helps Morgan and me and hopefully our listeners gain a greater understanding and appreciation of people with whom we sometimes disagree. But listening is not all that easy. In fact, it's one of the most arduous and painful acts we can perform. Today, we want to explore why that is so, what makes listening so hard. And as people commissioned to proclaim the gospel to one and all, we sometimes wonder, where does listening fit in 
with this great commission. So as both a tribute to our name and the crucial need for listening in a divided world, we want to explore such questions on this episode of Quick to Listen. Yeah, and I just wanted to remind people that if they want to kind of get some more background information about this topic that we're talking about, they can read Christine's article. It's called Why We Argue Best With Our Mouths Shut. That is available for everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. You can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen if you would like to become a subscriber and you can read that in both print and online though it's one of these articles that you need to be a subscriber to read in its entirety again it's called why we argue best with our mouths shut and if you do subscribe to ct you can get a download of mine marks and our other ct podcast host richard clark's favorite articles from over the years and that is a free download that we offer you with any subscription to our publication thank you to everyone who has subscribed as a result of the show and hopefully you will be convinced that you will want to read this article even more that christine wrote for us and give that a chance so again orderct.com slash quick to listen yeah so christine thank you for writing that gave us an excuse to talk about why we exist as a podcast but also, you just pointed out some really crucial dimensions of living together with other people, both very privately in families and the social sphere as well. So let's talk, let's get down to the very core of the question. What makes listening really listening as opposed to just hearing the words others are speaking to us? I feel like many of us can think of situations we've been in where we're having a conversation with someone and they may be talking, but our mind is just completely somewhere else. Um, So sometimes we can be easily distracted, I feel like, especially with smartphones and social media and email, like at our fingertips. It can be easy to be present with someone and hearing their words, but not necessarily really hearing and intently listening to what they're saying. I think the other thing that often happens, especially when people are discussing a contentious issue or an issue they may disagree about, what can often happen is instead of really focusing on what the person is saying and trying to hear them and really understand their perspective, we spend a lot of our energy thinking about what we're going to say in response. I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. And this can be about any issue, really. And so I think what makes listening really listening is is being very intentional about it, that being fully present. Um, and I have to say that I'm, I'm not the expert on this. This is just, you know, through reading books about listening, you know, even, you know, through things like marriage counseling or reading parenting books. All the advice basically is that to really truly listen, it's not a passive act. It, it takes energy and effort and it's it, it has to be very intentional. You have to make a decision to be fully present with that person and really be willing to put yourself in their shoes and understand, try to seek to understand what, what it is that they're saying and where they're coming from. I think there's a relationship there between wanting to learn. It doesn't have to be like necessarily learning a concept, but learn something from the other person that is needed if you're going to actually listen to them. And you need somewhat of an open mind or a willingness to to change something that you've held. I'm trying to qualify this because there are plenty of times where I listen to people and they're not going to change my mind because I already hold the same opinion as them or it's more fact-based information rather than someone trying to persuade me of something. But it does seem like you have to be willing to let this information affect you in some way and Hopefully that way will not be anger, which would also kind of like tread on not be listening as well. Sure. Yeah. I think, and I think you make a good point. I think many people who read an article by someone who's 
written article on listening or humility or on self-control or anything assumes the writer has their act together. But usually the writer is writing the article precisely because they don't have their act together. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yes. So I don't think any of us on this show would claim to be expert listeners. We're just committed to trying to be better at it. Hey, I've been complimented on my listening skills. Have you? Okay. (laughs) I think some people are more natural at it than others. But but I feel like for for any person, it, it it takes practice. It really is a skill that you have to develop and be very intentional about. So why? What are the various reasons we should listen to others? There's no command in the Bible that tells us to listen. And, uh, oh, I guess there is there's, there's the verse about <laughs> yeah. quick to listen and slow to speak. But it isn't a major theme. Sure. Um, well, I think that listening, for one, you can't really get to know someone without listening to them. And that obviously that goes both directions, right? Just to have a relationship with someone requires that both people truly listen to each other. And also, I think one thing I'd like to share is, you know, I, for this article, I spoke with Jonathan Dotson. He's the founding pastor at City Life Church in Austin. He wrote a book called The Unbelievable Gospel, Say Something Worth Believing. And the one thing he really emphasized in my interview with him is that people really feel loved when you ask them questions uh, and when you listen to them, when you when you just take time to hear their story, that can be a, an incredibly powerful and loving thing to do to someone. And I think we can all think of times when we've been in conversation with someone, we just needed a listening ear. I feel like especially when people are going through hard times or trying to process something they're going through, it can be really helpful to have that person who you can go to who is just going to listen to you. So I really feel like it's part of loving people. It, it, it's an act of giving um, when we take time to just listen with no strings attached and just give that person a place to process their thoughts or just a listening ear to know that they're that they're heard. I feel like it's tied with the command to love. I'm curious to hear each of your thoughts on that as well. I want to correct myself. There's actually, I just did a Bible search on my phone for the word listen. There are tons <laughs> of references to listen, but it's interesting. The context is usually it's God telling people to listen to him or other people prophets telling people to listen to God, but there is a lot about, in the Psalms especially, about how God listens to us. So in one sense, listening to others is one way we live out the being created in the image of God. We are like God when we are, when we bother to listen to people, because that's what he does with us. And he calls us to prayer. Prayer is a huge topic in the Bible, and that's the, that's the time when God listens. So there you go. <laughs> Trying to bring in the theological element here. I think we're all agreed it's, it's, uh, it's really, really, really important. It's an act of love. It in some way helps us participate in the life of God himself. But it's really hard. Why is it so hard? In general, um, people, once, once we've formed our opinion about something, it's easy to become convinced that what we believe and the view that we hold is true and right and that the world would be a better place if everyone agreed with us. And so I feel like, especially when it comes to issues that are divisive or that people commonly debate about, political, religious beliefs, any hot-button issue (laughs) that you can throw out there, I feel like the reason why really intentional uh, listening is hard to do in those contexts is because oftentimes we've formed our opinions and we have convictions. Um, But that can often hinder us from 
from listening to to someone who may have a different uh, conviction than, than than the one that we've arrived at. And so I, I thought of a funny example of this uh, facts and opinions and how we get them mixed up in the movie Inside Out. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Joy and the imaginary friend Bing Bong, they're riding in the train of thought and there's a box of facts and opinions and they all spill out all over and then Bing Bong just tosses them randomly back into the box saying, it happens all the time. People get their facts and opinions mixed up and it's funny but it's it's also true like you know sometimes we have a really strong conviction about something and we're convinced there's no reason anyone could possibly believe something different from us and then it makes it really hard for us to have a listening ear to hear a differing perspective or to show empathy to a person who disagrees with us. Christine, one of the most interesting things that you wrote in your essay, there's a section that says why people resist being persuaded. And I'm just going to quote what you wrote here because I thought it was fascinating. It said the problem with persuasion is not just that people are stubborn. People change their minds all the time about all sorts of things. The real challenge arises when someone's beliefs are tied to their identity. If changing your belief means changing your identity, it comes at the risk of rejection from the community of people with whom you share that identity. And I thought that was a really interesting insight about what sometimes we see as like the ramifications of listening well. We may not be consciously thinking like, oh, I don't want, you know, to be rejected from this community of people if I listen to this this person. But there is a nervousness or probably the sense that we might feel of like, is there going to be something that changes me if I if this person that I'm talking to might be right about something that I currently think they're wrong about? Will this have like larger social ramifications for me? I think that sometimes makes us unwilling to even get into dialogue with someone because we don't even want to broach that um, happening. For sure. It can be scary to have our own beliefs challenged. The psychologist I spoke with, Dan Kahan, um, he he really made a point of that, you know, in my interview with him that when it's a belief that's like, you know, certain thing is healthy for me or it's not something that's tied to, you know, my identity or who I see myself as or the groups that I identify with. You know, if we're confronted with information that challenges a belief we previously had, we're willing and able to change our mind about it. But like you pointed out, it's when those beliefs are tied to our identity if those beliefs change, then we risk being rejected from the community that we're a part of. This goes for people on all sides of issues. You know, we we identify with, you know, all these different labels or we have people who are in our peer groups and we want to be liked and accepted by them. That's a completely natural human thing. Uh, same goes for, for Christians. It's natural that if something that is going to challenge my core identity, <laughs> it, I'm being confronted with that, it's natural for us to resist it. I did want to share one thing. When, when my article was shared on, on Facebook by a friend of mine. I had a couple people chime in with comments um, specifically related to that quote you just shared from my story, Morgan, about, you know, the risk of rejection from the community of people that we identify with when our beliefs are challenged. Uh, and my friend David, he said that among Christians, he says that the idea that scripture is God's distilled final revelation to mankind, when that's the foundation of one's Christian faith, that it can prevent Christians from genuinely listening to to, to others, um, because there will always be what he calls a war within the evangelists to listen just enough to get their foot in the door in order to evangelize the other. They will push back against any threat to their core orthodox beliefs. And so he says, my contention is that if evangelists truly listened, then they would be changed too, but this would threaten their orthodoxy or at least their idea of it and hence their belonging to their cherished community. I did think a lot about this when I was writing this article because 
for many Christians, when we're going into conversations, especially if we're having a conversation with someone who doesn't share our Christian beliefs, um, we are entering into that conversation with the belief that what I believe is true. So does that make it more difficult to have a genuine listening conversation? And that's something that I, I feel like I'm still kind of wrestling with. Yeah, I think Morgan made a good distinction. To be really listening doesn't mean you're going to change your mind, because we do, in fact, believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and we're just not going to budge on that. Many great Christians have gone to the stake on that. But it does mean, it does seem to me that it should affect you in some way. I mean, I've had really deep conversations with a, a Jewish friend we do a good job of preaching at each other about what we think, but we also try to do a really good job of listening. And there are times in the conversation we just look at each other and say, we just really disagree. But getting to that point was really important because at some level, when we see the profundity of our disagreement, there's a, there's a moment there where we're connected more deeply than we were otherwise. So I think the very act of listening, even with people with whom we have to finally disagree, connects us to them in some way. You know, Christians have hold convictions, but they also have faith, and faith means that there's a lot of vulnerability in what they end up believing. Like, we are purposely choosing to believe things that we can't fully explain, um, we can't fully rationalize, we can't appeal to, to science for in many ways. And I think that any evangelist that is willing to talk transparently about why they've chosen to put their faith in something and say why they're willing to be made vulnerable for this belief and take a risk and decides that they believe something is true, regardless of perhaps other reasons why they might choose to be more critical, does put themselves in a way where they're able to talk about their convictions, but they're not also just trying to pretend that it's them armed with the facts against someone else who is less informed or does not have those facts. And I would speak autobiographically here. I think when I was a younger Christian, I did come to conversations armed with arguments to convince other people about what the truth was. But as I reflect back on that, I realized I didn't really, truly, and deeply believe what, in fact, the Scripture teaches, what the gospel is. If you're growing in your faith, yeah, your identity's wrapped up with it, your insecurities wrapped up with it, your reputation's wrapped up with it. Uh, and the older you get, you're, you're, you're able to slowly divorce those things and realize God is the author of all truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it puts you in a position of actually being able to listen to other people and try to discern where is God's truth and what they're trying to say. Because no matter what I say or that other person says, God is God. Jesus Christ is still the way, the truth, and the life, and I can kind of rest in that. So I don't have to then use the occasion to try to, in a sense, justify God's existence or defend God. Uh, I can just rest in him. So it seems to me that the evangelist who reads Scripture and then uses it as, as in, a, in a sense, excuse just to talk and not to listen is still really not ready to be an evangelist. Uh, although many of us have done it that way and stumbled over our feet doing it. The other thing, to me, the, the thing that's hard is just the concentration involved. Aside from trying to self-justify my existence, aside from trying to prove my point, listening requires a certain amount of physical effort uh, to sit there, pay attention, and not get distracted. And we live in a world of distractions. You've mentioned that. What? This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? 
Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. common mistake that we make is thinking that we can listen without actually practicing intentionality and forethought to listen. And so if we aren't saying, I'm going to actually listen now in this space, we end up letting other things kind of distract us or interfere with what we're trying to say that. So what I'm I'm thinking of in my head is sometimes in the office, there's public spaces where you might end up having a conversation. And if that conversation is really important and really needs to be had, you are not going to have that conversation in a public space because you know that the chances of you getting there interrupted or distracted are actually pretty high if you're in that area. You'd ask to go to someone's office, then you would close the door, then you would make sure that, you know, any type of like notifications that you might have your phone, the volume is turned down. So you're not going to be, you know, your mind is not going to be thinking of that the entire time, you know, your phone goes off. But I think sometimes we think that we can do it adequately in a place where there is lots of distractions and that's not actually very true. And we kind of like set ourselves up to be in a constant place where it was like, oh, what was that? What was that going on? I know when I really want to listen to people well, I like put my phone, I put my phone on silent and I put my phone in my bag. And then I just am like deciding to like look at someone. And I also don't like to go to restaurants because how often, how many times does, you know, the server like end up interrupting you when you're trying to like really get really deep into the conversation. Sherry Turkle in in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, quoted studies in which indicated that when people have their cell phone, like at a restaurant, they'll take their cell phones out and they'll put it on the table. Uh, It signals to the other person that you're ready to be interrupted. So it it also tends to make the conversation more superficial because they're not going to get into anything deep because they see that phone and they're basically, you're telling them, I'm interruptible, so don't go too deep. So little physical cues like that can really make a difference. And I think Morgan's idea of putting your phone away is probably a really good idea. Yeah, I mean, that's the same reason why people would, like, leave their kids at home, right, If you're, or get a babysitter. If you bring your kids with you, then there's a different way that I'm going to interact with you as a result because I know that they're going to interrupt you to a particular degree. It's not saying don't bring your kids or don't have your phone out. There's times when you can't, you know, when those are going to be the case. Another mistake that people ask, just to go back to your earlier point, Christine, is that they don't ask follow-up questions. If you are going to engage in a deep thought process, you can't just like be expected for someone to just pour out their thoughts. You have to ask them to really like think through particular things of what they're thinking about. And asking questions, I realize, is not, it's also a skill and it's an important part of listening and it's a skill that takes time to develop. As a journalist, obviously, I think about this all the time, like, you know, asking good questions that really kind of help people open up or, you know, express and share what's, you know, really on their mind or in their in their hearts or whatever, you know, if they're talking about an experience they had. It's not natural, I feel like, for a lot of people to really know how to ask kinds of open-ended questions that are not threatening because you can ask for clarification on someone's belief in a way that is can come across as offensive, um, like, 
well, why do you believe that versus like, well, why do you believe that? You know, exactly. You know, we can ask questions in a way that really kind of furthers that um, open dialogue or in a way that shuts it down. And uh, that's something that I think just takes practice. And you have to also remind them and reassure them that your intention in the conversation is to understand them and not to attack or critique or criticize or even try to change them. Like you really do just want to get to know them. It's an open dialogue. And sometimes simply repeating back what they said in your own words just to make sure you understand indicates to them that you're really, and it, well, it forces you to articulate what they said, and then it indicates to them that you really are trying to listen. Uh, this business of uh, repeating back to the person what they just said was a very important turning point in my marriage. My wife and I were married for a couple of years, and we were just not communicating whatsoever, and we went to a marriage counselor, and that was one of the first exercises he taught us, and we were both stunned to realize that when that when my wife said something and I repeated back to her, she would look at me and say, that is not what I just said. <laughs> and she would repeat back to me what I just said, and I would say, no, that is not what I said. So just the very act of forcing each of, each of us had forced to repeat back what the other said made a huge, huge leap in our be able to communicate with one another. So we've been talking more one-on-one. Let's talk about this. Is, is, is it possible to listen to other people on social media? Is it possible to listen to other people in a corporate setting? What does that look like? Social media, I feel like, is really, really tricky because a lot of times people use social media to be like, this is what I think, or here's an opinion piece I agree with, or here are my thoughts on this issue. And oftentimes we, what we can see happen is that people get into it in the comment section. It might start off with just a comment of I agree or I disagree. I feel like we've all seen these kinds of exchanges erupt into sometimes really ugly um, back and forth <laughs> between people. I feel like with social media, there's an extra challenge because you can read tone into words on a screen that may not have been intended by the writer. This is the challenge with any kind of communication via text, whether it's email or text or posting on social media. There's a lot of talking past each other, I feel like. So uh, I am not the world's expert on how to do this well on social media. Uh, in general, I try to ask more questions than I share opinions. And partly that's because I'm a journalist and I try to keep my opinion out of things and try to focus more on listening and promoting a conversation and a dialogue. I'm not the person to ask because I don't go on social media precisely because I find it so frustrating in that yeah, respect. Yeah, but you also do answer a lot of emails that you get too. Okay. Well, yeah, when you're when I'm when it comes to answering emails, especially angry emails to the editor in chief, which I get regularly, I think the signal that I really want to listen to the other person is I look for something that's really truthful in the critique and I apologize for it right off the bat. Yeah. And I thank them for bringing it to my attention. Or I'll say in a recent letter you you know you basically denigrated people like me who who did this sort of thing and I'll write them as well. I'm really sorry about that because my that is not my intention. In fact, it's one of my goals not to denigrate people. Could you please show me? Could you please tell me where in the essay I did that that made you feel that way? And that is that can be very disarming for people and really move the next email from being angry and attacking to being explaining. It takes a lot of humility to respond that way. I feel like that's a really good point when, you know, when we see something post on social media and we disagree with 90% of it are or even 50% are our impulses to point out all the things that we disagree with but not try to find that common ground. I feel like that could go a long way um just trying to make an effort to first point out where is the common ground before we go into attack mode <laughs> and not that we should ever go into attack mode but you know before we express the areas that we disagree 
I think the ancient monastic orders generally understood, especially in situations where people are about to crit- are criticizing you, they really tried to school the monks into knowing that this was an opportunity for them to listen to God in that moment. And so instead of defending themselves immediately, the first thing they should do is listen very carefully to the critique. Even if they end up disagreeing with 90% of it, they just felt like this was, in a sense, a God moment when God might be trying to tell them something that he can't tell them in any other way. So I think that does help you enter into those positions with a little more self-confidence and self-control. One of the funniest critiques that I hear leveled on Twitter as to why people can't have meaningful, more in-depth conversations is that they say, I'm constrained by the 140 characters that I have. But then I go onto Facebook, which doesn't have character constraints, and I don't see that the conversation has necessarily improved when I'm there. So I don't think that character constraints are the only reasons why things can turn out of hand on here. I think the biggest thing, though, is that social media is this bizarre combination of what you were talking about where when people can't necessarily read in tone and then there's a ton a ton a ton of talking among people who don't know each other and this is true on Facebook and on Twitter because on Facebook people will often post stuff onto their personal wall and then they will talk about a family friend getting into it with a relative or on Twitter frequently people that don't know each other at all are chiming in on things and that level of just kind of like a fundamental estrangement makes it really challenging and difficult. I do tell people on Facebook that if you put something out on your own wall, like be completely fine being the moderator of that discussion and also try to be a little bit intentional with what you put on there and what you ask people to discuss. I think the more specific, the better. And then I tell them to delete comments that are not relevant to what's going on because other people will try to turn what you want to talk about into something that they want to talk about, which is not the conversation that you're trying to have on your wall. Twitter doesn't give you the option to delete other people's comments, but I do know as someone who uses Twitter much more than I use Facebook, I really, really try to assume best intentions, even though when I'm pretty sure someone is trying to make a sarcastic remark, just because I feel like that is a big way to diffuse things is to say like, I'm going to assume that you're trying to say this on the literal end, or if I'm not exactly sure where they're trying to go with something, I do ask, is this what you mean by this? And just try to ask for clarification on things. And I, and sometimes I read my clarification questions over again to make sure that they actually sound like they're clarifying, not like they're correcting or condescending, because there's definitely a huge preemptive kind of like bristling that I feel people have. One thing, Christine, that I would be interested in hearing you guys both talk on, though, is how to handle conversations when you might be showing up and being a good listener, but you're with people who don't necessarily have that skill and you're trying to talk about something that's a little bit deeper. And meanwhile, you feel like someone is on the other end almost derailing or undoing this good work of listening that you're doing. So this is in a more group conversation? Yes. Oh, Meetings, right? That's a good question. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> if I'm with a person one-on-one who's not listening well, I will I will graciously just try to get out of the conversation and say something to the effect of, I feel like it might be better for us to talk about it this another time, or some something to say, not to put them down, but just to say, I don't think we're getting anywhere at this point, but I'd love to get back to you and talk with you, and maybe we can come back to it with a fresh night's sleep or whatever. When you're in a group setting, it's a little harder. If you're the moderator of the group, you have a little more authority to step in and say, can we just stop for a moment and let Mary have her say and let her just let her say what she needs to say. But if you're a member of the group, it's a little harder. Yeah. It's a little more awkward. Yeah. And I'm not a confrontational person, so I don't find myself in arguments in groups very often. And if I am, I'm not usually participating because it's just not really my personality to do that. (laughs) 
Yeah, but I think I agree with Mark just trying to, as much as possible, be like a moderating voice or call attention to if this is not going anywhere, we should talk about something else or give it some time before we continue this dialogue. And the, the other corporate setting that's uh, gotten in the news a lot lately is when a guest speaker comes to a campus, or uh, that's the most common way, but there's other situations where you're in a public forum now, and someone gets up to speak, maybe even who's been invited, and they start to get shouted down. Obviously, that's a situation where most of us agree, you know, in a democratic society, that person ought to be, ought to have, we ought to give them the courtesy of listening to them, even if we disagree with them. But that seems to be very difficult in certain sectors of our society now. For Christians, if you're, if it's a Christian college or a church where you've invited someone to speak on a controversial subject, it certainly is part of, in a sense, the duty of hospitality to welcome that person and to let them have their say. It, 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 to me, it seems so obvious that this would be just a natural human courtesy as well as in a Christian context, an act of hospitality. But it does seem to be something we're struggling with as a society now. Well, there's a common sense that what happens when you don't believe that a view is hospitable to you, right? I think that's kind of the sense is that there are sometimes people are being invited to campus who hold openly hostile beliefs to a segment of this campus population. And so if they have these hostile beliefs, there's a warrant to not extend hospitality to them. If you feel like I I can revoke my hospitality because we never should have been hospitable to this type of view in the first place. But there's a genuine feeling that, yeah, if this person is allowed to speak, we're legitimizing their point of view, however nauseous it might be. And they're, they're known for attacking people who have our view or who attack us as people. So I get that. So it is threatening. That's what makes it hard. In any conversation when someone attacks us, either directly or indirectly, again, it's, it's just hard. No question about it. To give someone the opportunity to speak is not to say you agree with them or you affirm them or you think their views are legitimate. Their human person is legitimate because they are created in the image of God and Christ died for them. We're going to wrap up this conversation now. I have one other piece of advice for people, which is when in doubt, do not ask why questions because why questions are often about motive, which is when you're just trying to get data about like what happened in something. And they also kind of activate whether we are going to like or dislike someone, which is not necessarily the point of listening. It's not to determine if you were going to have an affinity for that person. At it the sounds end. like I should have been interviewing both you and Christine for this. You guys both <laughs> had really good insights into this. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. As a preacher, I've never been a very good listener, as you can tell, by the way, interact on this podcast sometimes. <laughs> Well, guys, if you want to give us feedback, as usual, you can do it on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now's the time of the show we call Precious Moments. It's that time where we get to hear something that has personally brought everyone in this room joy. And if people want to also put out a plug for their social media they can do that as well. Christine, do you want to go first? Sure. So I'm a mother of two and I'm uh, pregnant with our third child. He's coming in a few months. And so when uh, my oldest son, he's four and a half, we have conversations about him having an another little sibling. And I've told him, Timothy, you're, you're uh, baby number one and uh, your sister is baby number two. And uh, this is baby number three. And this is the last baby. And because I just kind of wanted to emotionally prepare him that th this is this is it. <laughs> and he his initial reaction was just he got really sad and he just said, "Why?" And I was like, "Cuz three babies is a lot of babies." And he's like, 
he just didn't say anything and he was sad. And so I was like, well, how many babies did you want? And he's like, five. And I'm like, so two more after this one? And he's like, no, five more after this one. (laughs) And I just like, I'm laughing and I'm like, but he's very, very sad. Tears are welling up in his eyes. And I'm like, well, where are they all going to sleep? And then he perks up and he's like, we'll have to get extra beds. (laughs) And then he came up with this whole plan. He's like, two babies can sleep in the office and two babies can sleep in Ariana's room. And one baby can sleep in your room. And he was the only one in the situation that would make it out with having his own room all to himself. It was it was pretty funny. Through the mouth of babes, Christina might be the voice of the Lord. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. Christine, are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at C.T. Herman. So C.T., those are my first two initials and my last name, H-E-R-M-A-N. Cool. Mark? Uh, I, I say this a lot about my grandkids, but, you know, they're a big part of my life now. So on Father's Day, I went to church, and there was not room in the pew to sit with my daughter and her uh, her husband and, the, and both children. So I was sitting by myself, and when they when they walked into the service, my grandson, whose baptism I preached at a couple weeks ago, just wanted to sit with me. And he sat down next to me, and, you know, normally how four-year-olds are just really squirmy, and they want attention, and they tap you and they're saying things. He just sat there and he just leaned his head against me and it was just so such a special kind of quiet moment in church with him Aww. there. So that was really nice. People can reach see me at or see me. They can they can see me, I suppose, if they go on images, Google images, but they don't want to do that. But they can uh, my interaction on social media is through the galley report and a a very kind reader said this week, I had the hardest time finding the galley report because I kept on looking up ChristianityToday.com slash G-A-L-L-E-Y report. Well, my name sounds like the ship's galley, but it's spelled with an I, G-A-L-L-I. So how can people get your newsletter then? ChristianityToday.com slash G-A-L-L-I report. Cool. All right. My precious moment is I have been volunteering at the soup kitchen for the past two years and I went on Monday and a bunch of people who normally come but haven't necessarily all been together and when I say people I mean fellow volunteers were all there this week and I just had a great time hanging out with everybody I like basically go for the volunteers it is a very disorganized soup kitchen that does not always have its act together in my opinion but I've made some really awesome relationships with the people that I have met there. And also it was not like 90 degrees in the kitchen this week, which is also nice. People can reach me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L and that's on Twitter. Thank you to our producers, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. As a reminder, you can subscribe to Christianity Today by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.